Chicago. Who gives a rat's ass? Hey, that affects us. Oh. Well, what about the massacres in Sri Lanka, honey? Doesn't that affect us too? I mean, do you know anything about Sri Lanka? How, like, the Sikhs are killing, like, tons of Israelis over there? Come on, Bryce. There are a lot more important problems than Sri Lanka to worry about. Like what? Well, we have to end apartheid for one, and slow down the nuclear arms race, stop terrorism, and world hunger. We have to provide food and shelter for the homeless, and oppose racial discrimination, and promote civil rights while also promoting equal rights for women. We have to encourage a return to traditional moral values. Most importantly, we have to promote general social concern and less materialism in young people. <laughs> Patrick, <laughs> how thought-provoking. Thanks for tuning in to Revolutionary Lumper Radio. In this episode, we kickstart off a new series of hashtag Theory Thursdays. We're going to start off going over like two chapters at a time of capitalist realism. We're not going to read directly from the book. We're just going to go over our own notes because we really think everybody else should 1 million percent go and check out this book. But either way, it's still easy to follow us. It's still easy to pick up a lot of what Mark Fisher was getting at. Without further ado, we're going to throw over the microphone to Ryan where he's going to lead the conversation. It's not that some people are just too dumb to understand it. I mean, that's complete nonsense, right? It can be taught to anyone. Uh, it is intuitive to some degree, and it's not like an intelligence thing. And, you know, we had some placards, one of them which said the pre-factual point that Zionism is racism. You know, it's not just a moral stand, it's a political stand. What you're talking about is the role that Israel plays securing the interests of US and British imperialism in the Middle East. And it would be talking about Iraq or Afghanistan or something today where I am and I like understand these conflicts that have literally been going on since I was born it's just like horrifying it's not it's not British culture it's just the world's culture they love stories they love this idea that there is this nation that looks like this I think it's a distraction from the class struggle to be honest hello and welcome everybody to a new series that we are starting that we are calling theory Thursdays. If you need that explaining to you, then I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Every Thursday, you'll get some theory, and we're going to start off today with the infamous, very famous Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher, the one and only. So here's how this is basically going to work. We've already read some chapters, I've written some notes down, and I'm just going to go through it. We're just going to flow, throw the ideas back and forward, essentially see what it takes us. So... Capitalist realism is the idea that our imaginations have been so heavily constricted by capitalism that we cannot even conceive of any other functioning system. Okay, so let's hop right into this. Chapter 1. It's called, It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. So the first thing here that Fisher talks about is the film Children of Men. I don't know if you've seen it. It's very helpful if you have for this. And it essentially talks about how dystopian the film is and how it perfectly encapsulates the term capitalist realism. That not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also how it is impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. And how the film demonstrates capitalist realism taken to its logical conclusion, its most severe, its endpoint, essentially. 
Within the film, there is a government that has been stripped of basically all function except military or police function. There are internment camps, etc. And how the state essentially functions as a handmaiden to the economic system. And this is something that I've always said and always talked about, how the political system exists to protect the economic system. Okay, which means that the economic system is primary in any society. And the yeah. politicians simply exist to determine what happens with the economy, whether you get sort of, you know, full-blown 100% neoliberalism, as you get in, you know, conservative or Republican governments, or just that, but with a smiley face in the Democratic or Labour equivalent. The economic system being, of course, capitalism, yeah. Right, yeah, definitely. But even if it wasn't capitalism, right? Like, even if we had a communist society, the political system in that society would exist to defend the economic system. You would have, well, depending on what form of communism you had, right? Because some people believe in one-party rule, but the economic system there is to protect the, the, the political system there is to protect the economic system, right? The economic system is primary, and everything is downwind of the economic system, essentially. Um, let's have a little look here... And he then compares this to the role that the state played in the 2008 economic crash, but basically how the state came in during that time to save capitalism from the inevitable disaster it got itself in. So in the film Children of Men, the book talks about how there's no singular moment of disaster, right? There's no black swan event that wakes everyone up and makes them understand that we've passed the point of no return. Instead, society is incredibly elastic. It just keeps stretching further and further, and disaster just keeps stretching and stretching. And there's no grand moment of understanding. There's no point at which everyone wakes up and understands. Essentially, what you get instead is a perpetual sleepwalking into disaster. And it's evident within the theme of Children of Men that sterility should be read metaphorically, Fisher writes, as the displacement of another kind of anxiety. And this anxiety cries out to be read in cultural terms. And the question the film poses is, how long can a culture persist without the new? What happens if the young are no longer capable of producing surprises or capable of imagining anything new? And this is one of the impacts of capitalist realism, obviously, that Fisher spoke about earlier, right? The inability to imagine any other alternative. The power of capitalist realism derives in part from the way that capitalism subsumes and consumes all of previous history, right? So one effect of its system of equivalence, which can assign all cultural objects, whether they are religious iconography, pornography, or das Kapital, it can assign all of them a monetary value, right? Capital is obviously king within capitalism. And if you walk around the British Museum, where you see objects torn from their life worlds and assembled as if on the deck of some predator spaceship, right? You have a powerful image of this process at work. In the conversion of practices and rituals into merely aesthetic objects, the beliefs of previous cultures are objectively ionized. They are transformed into living, breathing things as part of a real history and culture into nothing but artifacts. They're taken in as capitalist artifacts and they're admired in these senses and as living and breathing artifacts of capitalist society because people have went there and physically stolen. It's about power, it's about going over there and conquering culture. Anything that another civilization has produced is stolen. Yeah, definitely. 
this capitalist nightmare to to say like that meme where it's like you made this i made this right, right, <laughs> you know right, right, right. it's as simple as, as that kind of yeah i mean it, it's essentially just whitewashing history right and it's taking something that's part of a like i said a living breathing culture and then just reducing it to nothing but an artifact and those are definitely the spoils of colonialism neocolonialism or settler colonialism right i mean these things were essentially stolen from lands at the barrel of a gun, no doubt about it. Yeah, it's like, you wouldn't know about this thing unless it was in our museum, therefore we deserve the credit for it, and that plays into this superstructure of ideology where it plays into us thinking we're the smartest people on the planet and, and other people who actually produce these artifacts and cultural antiquities that they're stupid in a sense as if like that wasn't going to be preserved and worshipped in in almost the same respect as it would in in one of our museums yeah i mean it performs an ideological purpose right the idea that like we have these you don't have these which would make us superior somehow yeah the accumulation of things of capital of wealth god damn it sick for sure so capitalist realism is therefore not a particular type of realism. It's more like realism in itself, right? The idea of a thing of itself. That's a philosophical term. It's going back to Kant and Schopenhauer, right? A thing in itself. Let me quote here. Capital has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, or Philistine sentimentalism. It is the icy water of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal worth into nothing but exchange value, and in place the numberless, indefeasible, chartered freedoms. And in place of the numberless, indefeasible, chartered freedoms, has set up the single, unconscionable freedom, free trade. In one word, for exploitation, veiled by religious and political illusions, it has substituted naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. Capital ultimately is the unnameable thing, the ever-present phantom that rules over all of us and controls all of society without ever having to have a debate on it. Primitive and feudal societies warded this phantom off in advance. Nothing exists but capital, but cultural importance. No rules, no morals, nothing but the almighty fiat. Rules are created and broken at the will of capital, to suit whatever capital wants at any given moment. This is why it's such a surprise to me that the kind of religious, traditional, family, conservative, you know, family values, traditional, conservative crowd are the strongest protectors of capitalism, right? They don't even have a theoretical understanding that capitalism doesn't care about your religion or your moral values or your family values, right? It doesn't care about any of that. It's going to bulldoze all of that the second it stands in the way of capital. The second that companies realize that they can make money off of religion, and by the way, they already did like millennia ago, then the values and the morals get cast aside and it becomes nothing but something that's used to facilitate exchange value. They don't care about it to any greater degree than the amount of money that it can offer them. They don't realize that capitalism doesn't care about your religion. Nay, it's actually worse than that, because it doesn't just not care about it, it destroys all of those things. Indifference is actually an improvement upon malice. 
That's an extremely important paragraph right there because this is where Fisher first ties in capital with the conception of capitalist realism and capital as communist is something we should all be extremely fucking glued up on. You know, hence capital and the many volumes. We have to know about capital and Fisher describes this as nothing existing but capital. And what is capital? Capitalism is what we as workers, as a people, have produced through our labour, through our experiences to produce things in, in the real world, be that, you know, art, buildings, infrastructure, the simple labour of putting things onto shop shelves, you know, we're shaping the world and our history, everything around us, but the surplus labour is being extracted by these parasites known as the bourgeoisie, the ruling class. And what Mark Fish is doing is he's showing you capital not on an, an economic system on a computer he's showing you in the real world where everything you see physically has a capital value so you go outside and you've got the skyline you've got the clouds floating above you which you marvel at sometimes just like wow that's far away <laughs> i can't believe that's floating there and then you've got this skyline of buildings in front of you and it goes down you've got like the tops of roofs and windows and all of that's being manufactured by a company who've been hired privately to produce public houses in the most sense through capitalism through private enterprise where it's done in the most cheapest way so that a certain kind of businessman can make money building those buildings and you've got the fences around it to protect that private property around them Again, the people who make the fences, again, private property, you know, private business, it's not the state producing this, it's kind of just like the cheapest person, Contractor. you know, who, yeah, who just whoever's willing to pay the cheapest price to produce it around it, and then you've got, like, you know, the roads, which helps the infrastructure and the capital move about throughout the, the system and society, and then, you know, the, 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 the pavement in which we're forced to move on, like, flipping fat and blood vessels slowly clogging up the the world's economic viability to survive in the universe everything has a value you go outside it's kind of like if you see like you see look at neo look, looking around and he sees like the code that's how like capitalists see the world that everything's just like money like that's a that's like got a certain value that's got a certain value if you can accumulate this land then you accumulate all the value that's being produced on that land this capital that people have obviously produced and even though we've produced our world we're subject to the laws and the systems in which you know fisher talked on that makes us not have a free will over the world and and where we can go and where we can travel despite us not having an actual uh, physical material economic impact in shaping the world it's it's the people with the biggest freedoms the most freedoms are the capitalists the ones with the most power and wealth and through accumulation and exploitation and fisher wants to talk about capital here because it's it's this very thing this capitalist realism where we can't move past this his whole point in this book i think is just to really reinforce that in people and to show that communists of course don't have a capitalist realism mindset but it is the liberals and it's not so much just political ideology they might not be political whatsoever it is the forces of capital and, and this capitalist realism that's not 
just shape the landscape of our world and our environment but also our brains and how we react to these impulses from sound waves coming into our brain to tell us about certain information of maybe we shouldn't be restrained into small houses you know dominated by landlords who own the capital and everything around us you know maybe we should have freedom that's kind of my take on this and we'll dive deeper into some of the actual other observations that he makes not just on capital but how this capital has infiltrated culture that shapes the cultural hegemony in the world today so i really love this piece that's why i'm so happy that we could do this ride yeah yeah that's all good i mean fisher he then goes on to make this like perfectly apt analogy comparing capital to um john carpenter's the thing have you seen that film yeah it's absolutely sick <laughs> it's funny that he brings this as a reference yeah, it, it's awesome, honestly. Like, yeah, everyone should watch the film anyway. Both the original and the remake are honestly both incredible. It's a horror film about a uh, a group of humans that end up on the uh, North Pole, I think, and they end up, you know, battling this, what they call the Thing. It's basically just a, a monstrous, infinitely plastic entity that's capable of metabolizing and absorbing anything it comes into contact with. And it actually hides as humans within the welcome party so it becomes like a, ooh, who's who's the good guy and who are the enemies it, it, it's a good film for sure this the thing concept of this alien that comes down and it, and it it manifests your body and uses your body to spread itself through other people and act as you under this disguise and you can see that like in so many ways when, when it comes down to just a simple bullying into like slave labor or any other kind of labor the this manufacturing of consent on the people where the people are, are kind of like forced into you know coerced into going to work and getting up out of bed and going to work for some capitalist and you know, really just being tired, overworked, they want to just sit and hope fucking enjoy themselves or at least do something more productive than, you know, serving some capitalist boss and mostly a bullshit job or, you know, stacking shells as a key worker. And, and it's this animating of us as people to being forced to work for somebody who's not lifting a fucking finger that day. He's on his yacht somewhere, you know, out in, in the flipping Bahamas. It's this animating of you this infiltration of you this parasitic behavior of using your body and your mind to further this capitalist parasite that's infiltrated humans like like a virus yeah definitely i mean for some people this was even seen as a good thing right because in the book the next thing he talks about is that the fact we live in a, a post fukuyama world and for those of you who don't know francis fukuyama um was the politician that proclaimed that once the Berlin Wall came down, that this would, and I quote, be the end of history, for which, you know, anyone with a Marxist understanding of history would know that history never comes to an end. Class struggle under capitalism can never come to an end, because, of course, class struggle is the engine in the train of history. So Fukuyama definitely needed a Marxist understanding of history there to even understand what he was talking about. So Fukuyama's position is in some ways a mirror of Frederick Jameson's. So Jameson famously claimed that postmodernism is the cultural logic of late capitalism, a piece that I'm sure we'll do going forward in the theory. There's actually quite a couple, there's quite a few pieces in this book that we should do as theory, so you'll probably see them coming up in the coming months because those are great pieces we should do them too. So Jameson argued that the failure of the future was Hans... Why can't I read that word? Constitutive. 
What? Am I blind? Instutative. That's not even a word. Hold on. He argued. Uh, I think I might just be a moron. Let me just put a synonym in there. Um. Okay, okay. He argued that the failure of the future was consistent of a post-modern cultural scene, which, as he correctly prophesied, would become dominated by pastiche and revivalism. I don't want to get too sidetracked by a huge postmodern conversation, but the short version of it is fuck postmodernism. And no, that doesn't mean I agree with the Jordan Petersons of the world when they say the same thing. Because if you, you can find him saying that too, and yes, I've said it too, that doesn't mean I agree with him on all the things. Um, Good to clear that up. Yeah, we can we can get into a, like a whole postmodern conversation at some point. If you want, maybe we... Yeah, let's do that. Let's do... Let's make the next piece of theory we do, cultural logic of late capitalism, Frederick Jameson. Okay. Oh, sweet. The next three paragraphs are basically Fisher giving his three reasons for why the term capitalist realism does refer to postmodernism, but of course he does because that's what he named his book, so it makes sense that he would prefer the term capitalist realism to postmodernism. So the first reason that Fisher gives when Jameson wrote Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism, that there were alternatives to capitalism at that point. But now, Fisher thinks that we're dealing with even deeper political sterility because there are no real meaningful alternatives. The second reason is that the term postmodernism obviously has a relation to modernism, whereas capitalist realism demolishes all that came before it, as previously discussed. And the third reason is that a whole generation has passed since the fall of the Berlin Wall. And to these people, the lack of alternatives to capitalism is no longer even a problem, which itself is the problem. Yeah, that's an important little paragraph there, because obviously he's talking about there is no perceived alternative in the mass consciousness of the people to capitalism. And I think a lot of people probably know a lot about what capitalism is than Jordan, the the capitalism versus Soviet Cold War, people knew what they were defending to an extent, whereas capitalism isn't really mentioned other than, you know, who's going to know about capitalism unless you're interested in class struggle or studying, like, economics in school and that? It's not really mentioned that, you know, you don't grow up in capitalist societies being told you live under capitalism. So not only are you not told about communism, obviously the CIA do have everything that they can to make sure that you not only not not only know about communism, but if you do know anything about communism, you're going to hear the absolutely worst thing that would paint humanity in the worst sense for insane reasons. But you don't know what capitalism is. So there's not only not a, an option of an alternative to capitalism, but you don't even know what capitalism is. And um, I think like people my age or maybe a, a bit, you know, especially younger people aren't really going to know about the fall of the Berlin Wall, anything like that. They don't know the, the significance of the Soviet Union as an alternative to capitalism and you know, when people investigate these things, you you come across obviously the fascism and the Nazi propaganda from, you know, the Black Book of Communism or, you know, 
the anti-CPC xenophobia that's going about lately, this, you know, synthetic leftism that people are talking about to really turn people away from communism. So they're looking at all of that shit and then they're looking at the memes and they're just like, yeah, communism's not actually an alternative, it's more of a meme. That's kind of what we're looking at today and it is seen as a joke to a lot of people as well and a lot of people online, on Reddit, for example, don't really help you know communists get that kind of like serious intellectual political humanitarian legitimacy because of how much they just joke about online do do you know what i mean yeah for sure i mean it's definitely true that people don't actually understand what capitalism is i mean i've had people tell me that like capitalism is when you can buy stuff so a cultural knowledge is honestly just so little like, the idea that capitalism would be when you can buy stuff is just ridiculous. Like, you've been able to buy stuff under every system that's ever existed, ever. Like, if you go back to slavery, guess what? You could buy slaves under slavery, right? <laughs> this, the, the idea that, like, oh, capitalism's the only system that allows you to buy things is uh, is ridiculous. And, I mean, I've heard people, you know, give defenses of capitalism to this degree, you know, like, oh, capitalism gives me freedom. I can go into a shop and choose between, you know, ten different flavoured cereals like people don't even understand the degree to what freedom is right like freedom is the choice to choose between choices if that makes sense like if i just give you oh you can have coke or pepsi right that's not a choice the true true freedom is to choose between what you can choose between so if i if i just say coke or pepsi and you get to choose between them that's not actual freedom right It's, it's a hobbesian choice you only get those two Right, because there isn't an option for you to just have water that's not even on the table. <laughs> right, because true, true freedom would be for you to just no, I w- I don't want to choose between those two. I want this other thing. Like we're talking about the hypocrisy in bourgeois democracy, and you use as as a reference to say, yeah, this freedom that comes with this democracy that you know we we all live in today, this pseudonym that they give capitalism, which is what we live in more than any you know, actual perceived definition of democracy because you could buy slaves, yes, unless you were a slave. Do you know what I'm saying? So oh, for sure. there's still there's still that contradiction and there's still that hypocrisy behind it. We've never got a freedom as long as we live under any kind of uh, dictatorship. So that's why we start towards the dictatorship of the proletariat to eventually obviously move past it when capitalism has been defeated and we're, you know, the reactionary against us to transition us back into this barbaric, I'm serious, like barbaric society under capitalism that we live in today. Definitely. Definitely. So moving on in the text slightly, Fischer then goes on to talk about how alternative and independent don't actually designate something outside of mainstream culture. Rather, they are styles. In fact, the dominant styles within the mainstream. So he talks about this in relation to the fact that no one embodied or struggled with Vietz Deadlock more than Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. So Cobain was attempting to be counterculture, but the problem was that Cobain knew that he was just another piece of spectacle, right? Nothing runs better on MTV than a protest of MTV. So Cobain found himself in a Profound. world in which stylistic innovation is no longer possible, where all that is left is to imitate dead styles. I think one of the interesting things about Nirvana that, that you don't really talk about that much is that you're very concerned about sexism. I like that. That's, that's, that's good. So 
how do you uh, how do you make people aware of that problem? By writing songs as blunt as rape me. <laughs> Having to resort to doing something like that is almost embarrassing because um, people didn't understand when we wrote a song like about a girl or Polly and having to explain that and having misunderstandings about it, it's just, I decided to write Rape Me in a way that was just so blunt and obvious that it's like no one could deny it, you know, no one could read into it any other way, you know, although some people have actually because some of the lyrics in it, some, of the, some people have thought that maybe, um, it has something to do with my disgust with the media and the way they've treated us and stuff like that, but it's not true. It's, that's not what the song's about at all. It's just my way of, in a sarcastic way almost, of like just saying how obvious do we have to be, you know? And I guess we don't talk about those kind of things that, you know, that are really important to us because, um, because um, I don't want to be thought of as like, nothing more than a PC band, you know? I mean, we're entertainers, <laughs> you know? That's what music is, and so it's it's really hard to, you know, step over the lines, you know? It's that you have so it. much power, because that camera's on you. <laughs> right, you, you can use it. <laughs> yeah, well, we try to use our power. I mean, we really have been effective in certain ways, like, being associated with this um, organization called FAIR, and I can't remember it right now because I have a mental block of exactly what it stands for, but it's something like, um, uh, shit, I can't remember. <laughs> but it, but they're, they're an organization who um, who looks at the injustices that are, that are, they look at the details that around, that surrounds certain issues and certain um, stories that have been, that have been, um, reported in, in in magazines and newspapers like USA Today who, who tend to, you know, look over a lot of the facts and, and um, they're pretty much a leftist organization that um, tries to protect people in, in certain areas, you know, and they, and they supposedly try as hard as they can to, um, you know, to deliver the truth. And so, you know, we've done benefits like that for like no on nine benefits for, to try to stop um, to try to stop um, Portland's um, anti-gay laws that they were trying to pass and, and we did a Bosnian benefit and stuff like that and you know it doesn't seem like much but you know we raised like $50,000 for the Bosnian rape victims you know and that's a lot more than we could have done griping about it and talking about it in the interviews and like maybe putting out a fanzine you know there's nothing wrong with doing stuff like that but you know we're using our, we're using the tools that we've, we have, you know, and we're being effective as much as we can. But we still don't want to be too political at the same time, you know, because it's just kind of embarrassing to do that. Or, you know, you get a lot of ridicule for it. Yeah, but you're doing what you believe in, and that's the most important thing. Well, it's hard not to, you know. I mean, if you're put in this position, what are you going to do? You become a Republican or something, you know, <laughs> just to protect what you've earned, big deal. And we see that today more than ever, where people still listen to Flip and Kirk being Nirvana, and there's a whole range of like Green Day coming back, and you've got like Blink 182 coming back. Mark Fisher said, You get to see all of these things in high definition now on YouTube, and people are obviously paying for these things. That's all this replenished thing, and 
And to talk about Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, who obviously blown his own head off with, with a shotgun, I think of Biggie and Tupac and the paths that they were set down on. And you see this revolutionary rock and roll from Kurt Cobain reiterated in Tupac. I think Tupac's spoken in high regards to Kurt Cobain. I think the similarities go in the sense that they're talking about this anguish that we as people grow up in society and they push it out through music, their expression. And what it done is it drove Tupac down two separate routes. And we talked about this in the NWA episode where he was kind of like revolutionary in a lot of sense. He read Stalin. He spoke against millionaires, but at the same time, he was led down a capitalist path to become rich and that confliction led them back down the path in which ultimately saved the capitalist because when Mark Fisher talks about taking art as he said earlier when it comes to having art pieces in the house and nobody even being around to witness it because of the collapse of society human beings not being able to reproduce it and when asked why have you got these objects these art pieces when nobody's going to see them the owner replied you know, I just don't think about it. And if Tupac never thought about his past, where he come up from the ghetto, I think he probably would have been fine just living in this world. As you see, like, rappers from Jay-Z and, like, even Kanye West. I mean, in society today, if you want to be working class or poor and then have class mobility, it comes down to you've got to be an integral part of pop culture. And this pop culture just serves again. You know, we saw how Jimmy Ivey picked up NWA and NWA, they were saying like, fuck the police. And that's now more relevant now than ever. But they were just saying, fuck the police. They say, fuck the police. They were saying, fuck the police to make their manager and Jimmy Iovine rich in the long run. Because this culture that they published, that's spoken to, again, the lumpen population of society, you know, working class people as well, on the ground, anybody hustling. It's not serving the people's needs. It's serving the capitalist needs, the bourgeoisie's needs. And it drove Kirk Cobain crazy. And Tupac just lost his shit he <laughs> he went full gangster when he should have went full revolutionary and this is the power of the bourgeoisie where they take stylistic innovation because it's no longer possible and the two-pack irritated dead styles because that's what the bourgeoisie wanted they don't want to show people that you can speak out and and all have this solidarity within your own culture that you can all get behind and mobilize in mass numbers like a, a concerts like Imagine people mobilising in protest as they did for like a Tupac concert. Like a, that's serious movements. But the bourgeoisie are managing it, the publishing it, the publishers of the music and the art. So they let so much speak to the people and entertain the people. But they also encourage a kind of gangish, thuggish violent and all the bad parts that capitalism forces these people into through crime and drug money which they rap about and they talk about in the music and in the art so the yes it's tolerated and accepted but it's also 
revered against the, within a certain populations of society. This is all about my image. This is, has nothing to do with me. This is all about my image. It's like MTV, all the papers, they building me up. Now they destroying me on the same image that they perpetuated. You know what I'm saying? I'm selling records. This is what I do for a living. I'm selling records. Don't get it twisted. This is not my real life. This is not how my real life is supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be really having all these villains in my life. I'm not supposed to be having, you know, the, the um, Philadelphia, I can't do shows, all, everybody's already, I'm guilty. But I didn't think they was going to take it this serious. Me keep talking out, I didn't think it was going to be a, a matter of life and death. So that it's stripped of this revolutionary potential, as we've talked about in previous episodes, when it comes to the spectacle in society. I mean, yeah, there's a lot there. There's so much there. I really love this. People definitely have to read Capitalist Realism. I'd love to hear other people's feedback. Love for people to actually take this on board to not just dive into the economic theory behind politics, but how it really manifests itself through all strata of society, whether it's the people, whether it's the jesters of society, which these artists then become made into. It's fucking... I love it just because it's so illuminating and it really profoundly changes how you see society and that's why I'm really happy that we're doing this episode Ryan because it's important for people to really grasp this theory. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the final part in chapter one essentially talks about, you know, hip hop and the two different meanings of being or getting real. So the first meaning is obviously like authentic, uncompromising music that doesn't sell out to the industry but also the reality of late capitalist economic instability, such as, you know, being harassed by police, ongoing surveillance, etc. And how the first definition made hip-hop much easier to be exploited and incorporated back into the system itself, right? It was the authenticity of it that enabled it to be profited on so easily. So those are essentially the main ideas from Chapter 1. We're going to go ahead and hop into Chapter 2 right now. So chapter two is called What If You Held a Protest and Everyone Came? And this chapter opens up with Zizek, yeah, famous philosopher, I'm sure you know of him, most people. You can just YouTube him and find him endlessly rambling about anything, honestly. I don't know what I even think of Zizek. Sometimes he's on the money, sometimes he's, you know, in the corner talking to pigeons. <laughs> it really depends on sort of what video you catch of him as to whether he's making sense or not, I think. But hey-ho. So the second chapter opens up with Zizek talking about how anti-capitalism is distributed heavily within capitalism, which is definitely true. So within many Hollywood films, the bad guy actually turns out to be, you know, the evil corporation. And I also hear him talk about the this effect in regards to situationism, right? So his idea was that the ideological space opened up by anti-capitalism was the space in which capitalism operates. So for those of you that don't know, situationism is awesome. It's an art style. You should look up situationism. It's great. It's an art style that I really like, I really enjoy, and there are many facets to it. But one of the key ones is this thing called detournement. And detournement is basically when you take existing art in the world and you detourn it, right? You tear it up and change it mainly to display the exact opposite image that you want to. Because art's obviously a powerful thing, isn't it? It captures your emotions, it gets you thinking intellectually, curiosity. That's why so much of our time is spent working under capitalism, because we're not free to contribute to arts and science and other things that might actually change the world into a more progressive place, don't you think? 
Yeah, for sure. So an example of the tournament would be, let's say there's like a, an advert or a poster or a billboard downtown or something, and it's advertising the military, right? What you do is you deface that to show an anti-military message, right? So it's basically defacing the images or adverts to display the exact opposite image of what they intend. Hmm. But Zizek speaks about how his idea was that essentially the ideological space opened up by anti-capitalism is exactly the space in which capitalism operates. So as the book says, a film like Wall-E exemplifies what Robert Fowler has called interpassivity. So it's the idea that going to see a film on anti-capitalism performs your anti-capitalism for you, allowing you to continue participating in capitalism without feeling bad, right? Because you went to see the anti-capitalism film, so it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, but Wally, I'm sure a lot of us are probably aware of what the film Wally is. We probably saw the adverts and we were like, oh, that looks like a cute robot film. <laughs> so we go, we pay money to go and see it because it's from Pixar and obviously we love Pixar who produce films about products and toys and consumer products becoming animated. So we go and see it. And if you've never seen Wally, what is it? It's this film about this robot who's left on Earth alone to try and find some kind of life and then when life emerges on like the dead planet that is earth which is the future dumpster pit which is going to be because we're constantly filling it with goddamn landfill and toxic waste and humans are eventually going to have to find the planet and then wally's there to eventually send the message out like whoa we've got this plant here we can come back to earth a planet which we destroyed and Yes, it's showing where capitalism will lead us and go to pitches to see it, even though we're, <laughs> we're contributing to the capitalist system by going to pay Wally. We're also left feeling somewhat, you know, satisfied with oxytocin, this trust hormone in our brain, like, oh, we've done the right thing and we, we saw this anti-capitalist film. So that's really an, an interesting comparison with what you said, where it's almost like putting something over the statue to show the opposite image for it and the capitalists are clever where they'll criticize themselves in that sense because again they'll strip it with any revolutionary zeal beforehand so like when people use an example where we're all gonna have to literally use a different planet because we're going to destroy this planet and move out of this planet and you know you see this white people are turning to like elon musk to get us off here onto mars because if you took the serious standpoint of saying we're going to destroy and the whole planet's going to be a landfill we're like oh well they were just talking about the film wally all we're going to do is just leave the planet and the spaceship and then come back and it'll be fine and this is where this is why he talked about wally and why Again, I love his comparisons where he takes these works that Hollywood and, you know, the cultural industry produces for us and not really for anything other than criticising themselves, but also making them money off it and stripping these very serious potential realities of our future of any revolutionary zeal. Yeah, definitely. So chapter two continues with a quote of Zizek, and then I'll tell you what I actually just don't agree with it on. So it goes and says, he says, and I quote, It's impossible to conceive of fascism or Stalinism without propaganda, but capitalism can proceed perfectly well and in some ways better without anyone making a case for it. Zizek's counsel here remains invaluable. If the concept of ideology is the classic one in which the illusion is located in knowledge, he argues, then today's society must appear post-ideological. The prevailing ideology is that of cynicism. People no longer believe in ideological truth. They do not take ideological prepositions seriously. 
Okay, listen, here's the problem here. So, no system can be sustained without propaganda. Capitalism is not a system that can exist independent of propaganda or would succeed without propaganda. And Zizek even says, actually, that it might even be better without someone making the case for capitalism. But the issue here is that capitalism has never had no one arguing for it. There has always been multiple strata of society that have been consistently and continuously arguing for capitalism the entire time. And it's obviously going to be those people that benefit from it, right? Yeah. You've seen that video where, like, literally Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, like, some Rothschild or something, something like that, like, they're all sitting around debating communism versus capitalism. And, of course, they're not debating communism versus capitalism. They're propping up capitalism, like, the three wealthiest people in the world kind of shit. So to say that nobody's, like, defending capitalism is just absurd. Yeah, I mean, essentially all they're doing is just delivering ideological propaganda, right? Like, the idea that the people who benefit the most from this system want to change the system it is ridiculous. Or, or even that they could give an impartial view on it. Like, do you honestly think that people like Bill Gates are going to give, like, a, a non-partial pros and cons? Like, there's simply no way. So that whole video, that whole talk is just ideological propaganda for sure. Yeah. So the, the next idea that actually Zizek talks about in this chapter is the difference between our individual subjective values on capitalism and our actions, right? So he says that we can continue to believe in our hearts that capital is bad all that we want, so long as we keep going out, working, buying, and consuming things, right? So we can believe that money is a meaningless token of no intrinsic worth, yet if we continue to act like it has a holy value, then obviously capitalism still survives and thrives, right? So, moreover, this behavior precisely depends upon the prior disavowal. Uh-huh, interesting. So we are able to fetishize money in our actions only because we have already taken an ironic distance towards money in our heads, right? So if we didn't have the distance in our heads between it being a terrible thing, then you wouldn't be able to perform the actions. Right? It's precisely because you've taken an ironic distance to these actions in your mind that you're able to continue with the actions. The chapter goes on to talk about even before its momentum was stalled by the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center, there was obviously, I'm sure a lot of you know about the supposed anti-capitalist movement known as Occupy Wall Street. And Zizek talks about how it seems to have actually conceded too much to capitalist realism because the movement itself was unable to conceive of any alternate system, and the movement simply wanted to just sand down the harsh edges of capitalism. They were basically social democrats. He then goes on in the chapter to make an interesting point about how the 60s protests, and how those people within those protests grew up to become, you know, CEOs, bankers, etc., and impose a much worse situation upon our generations than they had to endure themselves. He then talks about the Live 8 protests being organized by the global bourgeoisie, and as such, it has all the performative elements of protest without having the substance of protest, okay? So, no serious person would honestly expect the global bourgeois to end poverty, right? They, they wouldn't, and they couldn't. So that is the function that Live 8 performs. It's performative help charity, essentially, while having no intention of being serious. Yeah, just to comment on charities, a lot of the children in the Red Nose say they actually invest a lot of their money in stock markets, in weapon companies, in tobacco industries, on Wall Street. 
these companies are, and as I say, companies and stress on companies rather than charities say they get like 30 million in donations a year to a capital to like, okay, that's 30 million to invest in the stock market and we could get like 30 million back and then have 60 million to give to these charities. Obviously, they'll take probably like a couple of million off themselves because they own the companies who they gave the 30 million to trade anyway. So either way, they're making a return investment. Yeah, like this is where the parasites coming back. So everything, everything has turned into a capitalist blood sucking, money sucking parasite. And it, it's the people who buy into this shit. So like when they go to the film Wally and it's talking about this interpassivity where the film's performing an anti-capitalism for us, this charity is doing the exact same way. It's this interpassivity. Zizek talks about how when it comes to like anti-consumption. I don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like, uh, uh, did you recycle that paper? Did you throw all the newspapers aside? This is to make us feel good. And to, this is a genius of ideology in action. They translate a social problem, how we will restructure, how to restructure our economy and so on, into personal responsibility. This is ideology at its purest, when you criticize a big company and then an idiot comes and tells you, yeah, it's easy to criticize, but what did you do? Did you put all Coke cans aside? Did you do this, that? And if you do it, it's what? It's simply the main function is to make you feel good. You see? You see? I did my duty towards Mother Earth. I carefully put all the cans of Coke here all that I put there and so on. That's the main function of it. It's ideology at its purest. It's the same, I claim, uh, even with, uh, unfortunately, uh, this is, I even, I think, presented this line, but you were not here two, three times ago here in this very room, how it's the same with charity or with, with all of them. Look, if there is an entity which is ideology at its purest today, I'm sorry if some of you know this line, this is my favorite example, but now they're no longer playing this game, this card so strongly as they did years ago, Starbucks. I'm not a terrorist, but if I were to be a terrorist, I would say bomb Starbucks. It's this interpassivity, whether it's the film Wally. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, essentially, individual actions like recycling, it gives you in your mind, like, psychological permission to continue to participate in this system, because you did your individual thing of, you know, separating the cans out in the recycling or whatever, right? And that's where the stand on charities, too. Yeah, I mean, a lot and, of... And Live Aid, of course, being an, an example of Yeah, that. for sure. I mean, a lot... Of... As well as well as a chance for the sorry, okay. but as as well as a chance for the music industries to obviously sell their artists who they've hired because they've obviously got record labels and the Jimmy Iveens are like Live Aid's fucking sick, obviously because everybody gets to see our music play and we're doing this great thing for charity. It's sick, and then while they're sitting there with like millions or billions of pounds in the bank, trying, mm-hmm. you know, it's fucking disgusting mate yeah there's a there's a new tv series called corporate and you should watch it because one of the episodes is about this it's about you know banksy not personally 
Well, obviously, but maybe like, you one know day you know, yeah, you know what he does and everything. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, one of the episodes is about that. It's about a street artist, and he's called Trademark. And the the TV series follows this corporation around, and it's pure evil, and it does tons of evil shit. And one day, like the episode starts with the TV equivalent of Banksy has like tagged their front building. So all these protests start and everything. It's honestly a great TV show. You should watch it. And all these protests start. And then they go up and they have like a corporate meeting. And they're like, right, how do we profit off of this? And I don't know how much I want to like spoil the episode. But they start like making anti their own company mugs and t-shirts. And they just start selling it to the protesters. And then they turn it into like protest fest. So they like take these protesters and they start like... They um, bring in, like, Kanye West and everything, and they start doing... They turn it into, like, a festival, and they're selling, like, their own branded, like, fuck this company drinks for, like, 20 quid each. And the whole thing's insane. Uh, it's honestly a great TV show. Everyone should watch it. Yeah, there's there's a lot there to go off already. But, yeah, again, why would that system be there? Why would that TV show be there? It's also to you know, appeal to people like yourself in a sense to think, sure, oh, te- yeah. telly's not bad. <laughs> Again, telly's that's not the that impassivity. Bad. That's the impassivity, yeah. right? Like, I can watch that and think, oh, but I guess it's a little bit different because I'm it not watching because that you're a Marxist and you, you've got that materialist analysis. We, we can talk about it and see for what it really is. Whereas somebody without like a historical capitalist realism understanding would just, you know, buy into it. Like, yeah, I as mean, into passivity. Yeah, I mean, it's also because, like, I don't think I'm changing the world by doing that, you know? Like, I know that I'm just, like, watching a TV show that they got paid for, whereas when you go to a protest, you think you're actually changing the world. You're like, oh, damn, I'm really doing something. I'm really, like, changing things. I'm out here. But when I'm watching a TV show, like, I don't think I'm changing the world by watching that TV show, right? No, but there's a lot of people who would just by watching it and then telling other people about it and saying, have you seen this? This is like so much knowledge. You need to watch this because that's how it is. You know, isn't that yeah, deep? True. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like they've done a big difference, but all they've done is they advertise whatever TV company and broadcasting company published that. And that's why ultimately it was produced for profit and capital in the same ways in, in, in which you mentioned. So it is really incorporating the same what the writers had written about selling the anti-them mugs. That's what the TV episode is towards a TV company. Right, yeah. I mean, that got sold. That got picked up by a network and it got sold to a distribution. Yeah, for sure. It's the capitalist realism where everything's just a regurgitation of what's already being produced. Like, yeah. personify, capitalise, you know, it's, it's there and wow. It's a really good show, though. You really should watch it. It's hilarious. Every episode is just about like how evil this corporation is and what the fucked up shit they do. It's actually, it's actually <laughs> I, really good. I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, it sounds obviously dead interesting. You should. It's, it's hilarious as well. It's funny. Like It's not just like, this is how everything is bad. Like It's hilarious. So chapter yeah. four here is... Uh, chapter two here, sorry. It's only four pages long. So the most important, and I think the most interesting idea is at the end of the chapter here, and we should actually do a dedicated video on this itself. So this is called, this idea here is Gothic Marxism, right? So I'll quote from the book here. The most Gothic description of capital is also the most accurate. Capital is an abstract parasite, an insatiable vampire and zombie maker. But the living flesh it converts into dead labor is ours, and the zombies it makes are us. There is a sense in which it simply is the case that the political elite are our servants. 
The miserable service they provide from us is to launder our libidos to obligingly represent for us our disavowed desires as if they had nothing to do with us. So this idea here is called Gothic Marxism. It's also called sometimes Hauntology. And you can find loads of film critics about this. In fact, Zizek does this. He has a, um, a video that we were going to do. I don't know if we still will. Um, his, it's basically a theory, uh, a video on theory and ideology. And it's called like a pervert's guide to ideology or something. And it talks a lot about this. It basically takes films, popular films, and it shows them through like an anti-capitalist lens. So the idea here is that all things gothic or hauntology, right? So like zombies and vampires are capital. And that's how it's played out within our psyche, right? Whenever you see like a horror film or let's just take like Dr. Frankenstein or something, right? In fact, I just came up with this on the spot, but that's too perfect an analogy. Everyone knows the story of Dr. Frankenstein. He creates the monster Frankenstein, and then Frankenstein destroys everything, right? That's capital, right? Dr. Frankenstein, that's the human race. He created capital, capitalism as a system, if you want. And then that system got out of control, and it ran rampant. It turned on its creator, and it's destroyed everything, right? Hmm. That's gothic Marxism. And it's great, and we should do a video on it, because it's so good. And he essentially ends the chapter talking about Bono from Live 8 convincing the world that they could end poverty if they only bought his branded anti-poverty product, right? So capitalism there again is convincing us that we can end poverty if only we participate within capitalism. And that's the end of chapter two. Wow. So, yeah, I'm not really switched on to this gothic Marxism concept. So concept. So Do you want to talk about it? I know that I'm not going to be able to fully get behind it as a concept or something that I would reiterate to others. Where I would take it, though, where I think it would resonate with me a lot more is if we could... This is why I want to bring the contemporary science into Marxist ideology and thought generally. Shout out to Savis, the leftist, on Twitter. Hopefully we're going to get an episode where we talk more on neuroscience. We talk about dopamine, serotonin neurons, neuroplasticity and we talk about how social media and other capitalist influences can affect our brains in ways which I think would really bring out this gothic Marxism where the zombifying of us as these animated bodies which are referred to at the start of this episode because it is very I can completely see where somebody talking about it as like an insatiable vampire and zombie maker but they aren't real so where, where it's like neuroscience is and I think it's the neural chemistry in our brains which these notifications which were all dominated around which wants us to check up on social media to become animated to actually check up on social media where I talked about it with Breton going into like this motherboard mainframe system where we've got set out circuitry paths which our brains and our animated bodies of flesh and matter and electricity and water move through and the capsules can literally go anywhere because they've got the power to shape the world materially into however they want and, and often this to support capitalism. Yeah, so that's where I want to go with this gothic Marxism. Yeah, I mean maybe, maybe we should research that more before going into the the neuroscience episode and then really we'll be able to tie them both in together because again i'm completely behind it as a concept but i'd really like to take a more contemporary science approach and into how the inner mechanisms of our brains are really 
pulled this like the strings of a puppet. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like vampires and zombies aren't literally real, but that's kind of the point, right? Like the idea is that these things are placeholders for capital in books. You just don't realize it, right? What you talk about, what is a vampire, right? Like it's a parasitical thing that feeds off of you to fuel itself. That's capital, right? You go to a job, it takes things from you, it takes your labor, right? And feeds itself with that, right? Capital is a vampire. I mean, I think that you can read a lot of horror books and you can essentially replace the the zombies, the vampires, the evil doing in the book with capital. That's what it is. That's that's this sort of ever knowing presence above us that hides in the shadows that you can't really name, but it's always just out of sight. You know, that's that's capital. That's what it is, right? Yes, and to carry along with that, more of a storytelling sense, you know, communism, socialism would be the light, it's the literal sunlight that the vampire shies and it gets burnt out, it it gets damaged, it simply wants to hide and then leech onto other things and spread its capitalist ideology in that reactionary nightmare way where it's coming for you, what the fuck can you do, it can fucking fly and everything, what the hell, get it away from me. There's only one way, and that is the sunlight. That is the power of the ultimate thing which humans have marveled at as the, the very first god of the sun, something bigger than ourselves, as a greater meaning, a, a greater something that you just really struggle to get your head around. It's powerful, but it totally eclipses this vampire parasite. And, and again, the power of the sun and the universe and life totally eclipses the power of capitalism as an, an economic identity. And it's something that we all have to strive past and we all have to learn that if we do drive a stake through its heart, through the bourgeoisie, that's how we defeat it. It turns to dust and then that dust we can use as goddamn fertilizer, baby, for a better society in which we can all live under the sun as one unified, alive, living, breathing human beings with ultimate freedom. And that's why we turn to these texts and why these theories are important. So hopefully we'll crack on with these now. We, we've got to the end of two chapters, I think. That's a good episode that we've done here so far. I really hope that people enjoyed this so much and got a lot out of it. Do leave some feedback, give us a share if you're listening on iTunes or Google Podcast or whatever. Subscribe and then you get to know next time once we've released the next episode there. So this is the end of part one and we'll see everyone in part two and we hope you have a great day. Before we go, just a big shout out to our patrons. We've got a couple new ones now, hugely appreciated. I mean... This, this is why I'm here now. We're, we're going to do more episodes, more theory. Really hope that people do appreciate it as much as we appreciate your support. Workers and Lumpen of the World, unite. Peace. I went too far when I was begging on my knees. Begging for your arms, for you to hold around. Oh